Welcome again to Exploring the Scriptures presentation on Christians and the Gospel with Dr. Ron Bartholomew. Here now is Dr. Bartholomew. Hi folks, um, welcome to the Gospel and uh, uh, Christian Religion. We are studying the, the, the history of Christianity, rather really the history of the apostasy. Um, I think you'll see today that we have a lot of things that would not have come forward if, if the gospel would have been on the earth. And uh, that's the part we want to look at closely. This is a chart that I got from uh, Pew Research Center. It's called the U.S. Protestant Split on Sola Fide and Sola Scriptura Scriptura in Issues Connected to Reformation, U.S. Catholic Society Echo Traditional Church Views. This is very, very interesting. Look at the left-hand side. It says, you presented the U.S. Protestant's believe who believe faith in God alone is needed to gain to get heaven so if both good deeds and faith in God are indeed are needed to get to heaven so uh, scriptura you've got the the process believe about half and half about that um, the the Catholics faith believe it 17% 18% um, and 21 to 78%. Uh, at the bottom, you got believe both in sola fide and sola scriptura. Net believe, but one not the other. Both believe, neither believe. You've got similar uh, with Catholics. And so the point is, uh, over 50, over after 55 years of Reformation era, divisions have lost much of their potency. Let me just continue with this. Half of U.S. Protestants say Catholicism is similar to the religion. Half of Catholics say the same about Protestantism. That's quite a large percentage, 50%, say that, you know, Protestants are like Catholics, Catholics are like Protestants. At the time, they weren't, but 500 years later, they are. And uh, you'll notice the Mormons showed up on this chart. That's, that's very interesting. Um, percentage say religion is very similar or somewhat similar to what to their own religion. Nearly 20% of, of uh, Mormon Mormons say that the other religions are like our religion. That's really unfortunate. Among Catholics, Protestants, and Western Europe, more see the religion as similar than different. So you got the Protestants and the Protestants, and they they see their the religion very similar to um, Catholicism. Seventy eight percent in Germany, sixty five percent in the Netherlands, sixty percent in Norway. And you the, the Catholics is the same. So it's very much people see religion as the same, although 500 years is very, very different. Few American Protestants believe sola fide is a Protestant belief. <laughs> That's really funny. Um, uh, the, the correct answer is because of the Reformation. What is the term commonly used to refer to the historical period in which Protestants broke away from the Catholic Church? The Reformation, 70%, the Great Crusade, 18%, down, etc. What was the name of the person whose writings and actions were inspired the Protestant Reformation? Martin Luther, 71%. Which time, which of which these religious groups traditionally teaches that salvation comes through faith alone? Uh, only 30% of Protestants said that that's true, and uh, that's very, very interesting. Among both Catholics and Protestants in Western Europe, the prevailing view is that both faith and good works are necessary for salvation, which was something that was part of the Protestant Reformation. Among the Protestants, you got 62% down. Among Catholics, you got 65% down. 
So the point is, the two religions, Catholic and Protestant, now, five hundred years later, seems to be very much the same. This is a percentage of global Christian of the Christian population. Fifty percent is Catholic, thirty-six percent is Protestant, and of course, we're part of the one point three other Christians. Um, a century ago, all major all three major branches of Christianity were discussed in Europe. That is still the case for Orthodox Christians, but not for Protestants or Catholics. The the Catholics and Protestants have moved from Europe to the other parts of the world where the Orthodox Christians have not, they've stayed where they're at. And uh, this is a very, very telling chart, especially in terms of missionary work. Among Christians globally, Orthodox share falling, Catholic Protestants shares increase. Orthodox 2019 to 2010, you see it goes from 20% to 12%. Catholics go from 47 to 50%, and Protestants go from 30 to 38%. The fastest growing, the fastest growing denomination. So we have to talk. We have to start talking about the failures of the reformers. The reformers sought to to change the Catholic Church, to to change the the way things were going. As you can see, five hundred years later, they haven't changed very much. Most people believe pretty much the same thing. Um, the Veldorist turned to Christianity. That was like already no no present group claimed apostles. They perpetuated many false doctrines, including the concept of the Trinity, predestination, that's neglecting our role in salvation that you see, the partaking of the body of Christ, even though they rejected transubstantiation, comma. They preferred the Augustinian view of the depravity of fallen man and the imputation of original sin, particularly the children's sprinkling and the priesthood of the believers. The notion that the congregation could choose their own leaders and ordain them with or without the laying off hands. The majority of Protestants, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and others believe the state should be in the church and the unbelievers should be punished by death in complete intolerance. One needs to look no further to answer the question occasionally put to Latter-day Saints. I've had this question put to me as well. If what you claim to have is the true gospel of Jesus Christ, why was it not restored during the 16th century Reformation when the various Protestant organizations were formed rather than three centuries later in a remote and obscure forming community in Western New York? That's kind of funny. Although there are many good and inspired men and women during the Reformation, political and religious conditions were not completely compatible with the Reserve Gospel. And so, what we're going to look at today is how the governments had to be compatible as well. And uh, I'll turn my time to you to read, okay? From Reformation to Restoration In many of the countries which fell under the influence of Protestantism, the only Christians who were not persecuted were the members of the new dominant church or those who remained silent on matters of religion. During the 16th and 17th centuries, Mennonites, Anabaptists, Jews, Quakers, and many other Christians were savagely persecuted in Protestant lands. Lutherans were sometimes persecuted in Calvinist countries, and Calvinists were subjected to oppression in lands governed by Lutherans. During the age of the Reformation, mankind was not prepared to embrace the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Men do not ordinarily abruptly change their pattern of thinking nor living. History clearly reveals that important movements are preceded by extensive periods of preparation. In addition to the rebirth of learning and the Reformation, 
Other movements, other developments, and other periods of reorientation of thinking were necessary before conditions were ripe for the restitution of all things. What I'm going to show you today is not something that you normally believe. Uh, I found that most myths are are uh, passed on and, and propounded in elementary schools. Bill grew up believing them, but they're just not true. What I'm going to show you today is the truth. It's factual. It's historically documented. But it will probably surprise most of you, if not all of you. So grab the edge of your chair and be ready for a little bit of a surprise. One more thing was needed in the seedbed of the Restoration, freedom. However, most early Americans could not conceive of a society in which religion prospered solely by individual initiative. Because it had not happened anywhere in the, in the world up to that point. This is a picture, of course, of the Magna Carta. Um, I've seen it personally. I, I'm sure as many of you have as well. A large majority of the first settlers could not accept the right of dissenters to proclaim views which conflicted with their interpretations of orthodox beliefs. That's a very important point. Most of the first settlers of the United States of America, well, before it was the United States of America, could not accept diversity because they'd never experienced it anywhere else. Most concluded that religious orthodoxy was an indispensable ingredient in preserving peace and order in society. In other words, they believed that you had to believe what everybody else believed for there to be peace and order in society. Disunity, it was generally held, was a menace to free government. Things have changed a lot. Therefore, many believe that religious liberty and separation of church and state could create in the new world a lawless society and would inevitably result in the damnation of numerous souls. Now, many people point to the fact that it did lead to a lawless society. And there were a lot of people that were, that were killed, but it was necessary. Only a few early immigrants contended that all men, or even all Christians, should be granted liberty of conscience, and few desired a system of voluntary support of religion. That's so different than it is today, but that's how it was when they first came here. Prior to the American Revolution, there were tax-supported state religions in nine of the 13 colonies. Tax-supported state religions. In other words, you had to belong to the state religion or you had your hand or something else cut off. In the South and in New York City, the Church of England was the public-supported religion. And in New England, outside of Rhode Island, the Congregational Church was a legal establishment. Furthermore, in four colonies, Virginia, Massachusetts, including Plymouth, Connecticut, including New Haven Colony, and New Netherlands, which became New York, New Jersey, and segments of other English colonies, there was a determined attempt for many decades to maintain ecclesiastical solidarity. That's all they knew. That's what they did before they came. That's all they knew when they got here. The desire to preserve uniformity of belief led to the enactment of intolerant laws similar to those enforced in Europe, and precipitated the persecution of numerous dissenters. An analysis of the ecclesiastical history of these colonies clearly reveals that for many years conditions were not favorable for the promulgation of the restored gospel of Christ. Because there was a state church and you had to belong to it or else. Very gradually the atmosphere changed, and limited toleration and pluralism preceded the adoption of the principle of religious liberty, the free exercise of one's religious convictions. 
we often think about the first people that came to the United States as freedom of religion people, but they weren't. The British experience provided the bedrock for the rise of freedom in America. As historian Samuel B. Rudolph has written, a study of the origins of our concept of liberty is in great measure a study of the history of England. Not the study of the United States of America. Perhaps the mind to exert the greatest influence on the American colonists' founding fathers belonged to Englishman John Locke. Locke's philosophy was that justification for any government can only be found in its ability to protect human rights better than individuals could do so. That is an important point. He felt that governments only could exist if they could protect human rights better than individuals could, which, is, which was the, his whole f premise for government. Based on a kind of social contract, government, he declared, should be by consent of the governed and representative of the people and could legitimately be overthrown if it failed in its duty to protect human rights. This is the paragraph that led to the revolution because the citizens of the United States of America, what we, what we call now the United States of America, did not see the British as protecting their rights. The British were enforcing their, their way upon them and so the, the rebellion that led to the, the 1776 revolution was American people saying, wait a minute, we should not be governed by the by the by these people be if they, they could be legitimately overthrown if they fail to protect our duty to human rights, which they were do as they saw that that was happening. On the question of religious practice, Locke maintained that religion is exclusively between God and man, and that a correct application of the doctrine of Christ could yield nothing less than the principle of religious toleration. Wow. These ideas would exert a powerful influence on the American colonial thinkers of the next century and on the rise of religious freedom. Freedom in America did not spring forth fully formed in a vacuum. Rather, the groundwork for the establishment of political and religious freedom in the United States resulted from hundreds of years of development in Europe. Of which the colonists all came from Europe, so they were all aware of it. Religious reformers broke the exclusive hold of the Catholic Church on Europe and prepared the way for religious pluralism. The growth of pluralism laid the foundation for the later development of religious freedom. So it was a process. It started with, it started with religious uh, pluralism and led to then religious freedom. As indicated by modern apostles and prophets, the divine hand was manifest in those European movements which helped pave the way for the restoration. Robert R. Newell, Karma T. Preeti, and Roy A. Preeti, European Origins of Freedom in America, in Window of Faith, Latter-day Saint Perspectives on World History, Roy A. Preet. The Age of the Enlightenment. Quite apart from their crab-wise and often reluctant embrace of religious toleration, for a wide variety of religious dissidents, England and the Netherlands achieved a wider distribution of prosperity than any other part of 17th century Europe. By improving their farming techniques and breeding new money through an exceptional range of manufacturers and commercial enterprises, they were the first regions to escape famine, the constant danger of mass starvation following harvest failure. Now you may wonder, what does this have to do with religious history? 
everything. An increasingly general distribution of surplus wealth opened up for the Dutch and the English. By 1700, these two nations were establishing their dominance in an ever-growing trade with Asia. This had momentous consequences. Merchants shipped home a range of goods which had the especial attraction that the cheaper end of the market could successfully imitate luxury items, principally textiles and pottery, even that unprecedented household amenity, wallpaper. <laughs> Manufacturers at home sustained this trade and added to the abundance of goods now available. Ordinary people in these late 17th century societies reveled in the unfamiliar sensation of possessing more and more objects which they did not strictly need, and just as much they enjoyed access to a degree of leisure, now that the provision of food was not a constant anxiety. This uh, modern welfare arrangement was new to them. It was a new thing, and so they, they were excited about it, and they didn't know what to do. Such leisure, consumer durables, and spare money might look trivial by modern standards of prosperity, but previously these commodities were restric restricted to a tiny privileged elite. Now choice was becoming democratized in society long before democracy had customarily been extended into politics. Christianity must now face the consequences in many different ways. Choice brought choice ideas, theology, and even churches and church attendance. This allowed for the theological storms which fractured the Western Latin Church, repeated glimpses of other eddies of ideas which disrupted the assumptions of medieval Europeans about the world around them. The discipline, which is the ancestor of modern specializations like astronomy, biology, physics, and chemistry, was then called natural philosophy. As men began to have more time to think and to study, they began to be involved in these different, uh, uh, different specializations. That demarcated itself from theology's concentration on the world beyond by exploring evidence from nature, the visible created world. We define this exploration as science and the story of natural philosophy in the 16th and 17th centuries has in the past often been called a scientific revolution. In the modern West, that term has commonly been yoked to the thought that science is a rational mode of inquiry, waging an ideological battle with an irrational foe, Christianity. However, science is a very imprecise word and in the area of the Reformation and Renaissance, it simply meant knowledge from any quarter. Europe's encounter with the Americas so highly populated with other humans had long posed doubts about humanity's single descent from the dwellers in Eden. This was a basis for much more searching scholarly investigation of both Old and New Testaments, which has continued ever since. As a result of this new scrutiny of the Bible, there was a growing feeling among some Western Christians that not merely other Christianities or even Judaism, but other world religions might provide insight into truth. 
This eventually led to the first atheist publicly known gay male and female organizations and science organizations. In addition, Christianity was becoming an activity in which more women than men participated. The spectacular growth of female religious communities, like the Ursulines, Ursulines in Counter-Reformation, Catholicism was one symptom, but in Protestantism there was a different and more fundamental phenomenon. In various settings, church attendance was becoming skewed, and congregations were beginning to contain more women than men. Now, for us in the 21st century, this is difficult to see, but if you look back in time, this was very, very much a new age for these people. They did not know what to do. It began with having more time to study because of the modern conveniences. That led to thinking about, well, did we really all come from Adam and Eve? Led to people going to church, led to women or women involvement. Once again, this was a matter of personal choice, and hence first perceptible where voluntary religion was possible. The phenomenon of gender-skewed congregations was already noticed in the late 17th century, and it contributed to new Christian reflections on gender. I was thinking about the Joseph Smith family this morning, and I thought it very interesting that it was Lucy, not Joseph, that went to church. Lucy took some of the girls, and one of the boys was there. Joseph did him with the with the man, except for Hiram. And so you see the same thing happening in the Smith family, where the women went to church, but the men stayed home. Now, some of you may not like that, but it's the truth. Women alert to the change in atmosphere began seeking their own reconstructed place in the church. Indeed, the Enlightenment in Northern Europe was generally led not by those who hated Christianity, but by Christians troubled by the formulations of traditional Christianity. In some measure, in its attempts to improve the human condition, the Enlightenment was a project for the reconstruction of the Christian religion, and that and it was in dialogue with the other projects for human improvement contained in evangelicalism. Evangelicalism. In the end, it was the Catholic world rather than the Protestant which produced a form of enlightenment, consciously setting itself against Christianity, proclaiming itself the enemy of mystery and the emancipator of humankind from the chains of revealed religion. That is a very important paragraph. It was the Catholic, not the process, that led to that. Ultimately, progress towards the Restoration was aided in the 18th century by the spirit of the Enlightenment, particularly the rise of rationalism and natural religion, or deism. According to deist views, God exists. He created the world, which is then governed by its own natural laws. Now, to see this just occurring is incorrect. I tried to show you historically how it eventually came to that, okay? God should be respected and praised, and men should repent of their sins and do good one to one another. Some, many of the Founding Fathers, were influenced by deism, at least Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin, and probably John Adams, George Washington, and James Madison. We'll see, we'll see what that looks like. Despite the fact that no less than two-thirds of the signatories of the Declaration of Independence were Anglicans, 
Elite education tended to lead those founding fathers not to the awakenings, but to the enlightenment and deism, cool versions of Christianity, or virtually no Christianity at all. Let me explain how that worked. The polymath Benjamin Franklin seldom went to church, and when he did, it was to enjoy the Anglican Book of Common Prayer decorously performed in Christ Church, Philadelphia. He made it a point of principle not to spend energy affirming the divinity of Christ. Thomas Jefferson was rather more concerned than Franklin to be seen at church on key political occasions, but he deplored religious controversy, deeply distrusted organized religion, and spoke of the Trinity as a abracadabra, hocus-pocus, a deliria of crazy imaginations, as foreign to Christianity as is that of Muhammad. In the face of such low-temperature religion, many on the present-day American religious right, anxious to appropriate the revolution to their own version of modern American patriotism, have sought comfort in the ultimate founding father, George Washington. But here, too, there is much to doubt. Washington never received Holy Communion and was inclined in discourse to refer to providence or destiny rather than to God. In the 19th century, patriotic and pious artists often spiced up Washington's deathbed with religion, giving him on occasion an almost Christ-like ascension into heaven, accompanied by a heavenly choir. But the reality of the scene in 1799 did not include prayers or the presence of Christian clergy. I've done a lot of study on Washington's life, and this is all very, very true. He was not Christian. What this revolutionary elite achieved amid a sea of competing Christianities, many of which were highly uncongenial to them, was to make religion a private affair in the eyes of the new American federal government. The Constitution, which they created, made no mention of God or Christianity apart from the date by the year of our Lord. That was without precedent in Christian polities of that time, and with equal disregard for tradition, after some debate, the great seal of the United States of America bore no Christian symbol, but rather the eye of providence, which, if it recalled anything, recalled Freemasonry. Which was not religion, by the way. The motto, In God We Trust, only first appeared on an American coin amid civil war in 1864, a very different era, and it was 1957 before it featured on any paper currency of the United States. I was born in 1959, so it was basically during my lifetime that that's been there. Famously, Thomas Jefferson wrote as president to the Baptists of Danbury, Connecticut, in 1802, that the First Amendment to the American Federal Constitution had created a wall of separation between church and state. Reason and morality were the watchwords of enlightened society. Yet something essential to Christianity was missing in this rational religion, the intimacy of God and the divinity of Christ. Christianity without the miracles of the birth, resurrection, and atonement is not Christianity at all. The, hum the new humanitarianism can only be praised for too long it had been ignored by partisan theologians. But the deist rejection of theology, although making room for greater toleration of different Christian sects, 
was a crit criticism of Christianity itself. Now, many people don't like this, but it is true. It was necessary for the establishment of the Restoration. One of the greatest contributions to arise out of the Enlightenment, more indispensable than the most profound theologies of the era, was the Creed of Tolerance. The Creed of Tolerance, that was the thing that arose out of it. Benjamin Franklin, along with the other founding fathers, previously mentioned, became a preeminent proponent of this creed. The people should be able to believe what they want to believe. In a world that was then and now bloodied by those who sought to impose theocracies, state churches, these founding fathers helped create a new type of nation that would draw strength from religious pluralism and tolerance. This, more than anything else, made the United States a new thing on earth. That is the truth. So let's talk about what it was really like. Thus, the traditional view emphasizing religious zeal in early America does not portray correctly the religious life of the average colonist. Now, I know this is going to shake some of your faith, but just hold on to your chair and be patient. It's going to come through. A generalization that more accurately described conditions in pre-19th century America is that organized religion was neglected. Settlers were indifferent towards colonial Christianity, neglecting to observe the Sabbath and to study conscientiously the scriptures, failing to utter regularly individual or family prayers, and seldom attending worship services. One thing that is positive with all this is if you watch a lot of Western movies that depict the United States in the early part of the 19th century, there's no prayers, there's no scriptures, there's no churches, there's nothing, and that's the truth. There wasn't anything. As the settlers dispersed into the frontier, they lost contact with organized religion. Many families lived far from the home of a minister and a meeting house. This was partially due to the fact that there was serious shortage of trained ministers and meeting houses. If you go to Europe, there's ha there's church houses everywhere. If you go, if you stay, if you go through America, there isn't. This made it impossible, impractical, or inconvenient to attend services. Several factors led to the de-Christianizing of the southern colonies. Now this is going to be really hard for some of you, but it's, it's still the truth. The Anglican Church, which was dominant in the south, refused to send a bishop to America, which resulted in the takeover of the church by secular leaders. In addition, those immigrating to America were typically uneducated individuals, unable to make it in Europe, and therefore upon arriving and actually being able to own their own land, they often became susceptible to materialism. Which is very much the case. As a result, only 4-5% to 5 of the total population of the southern colonies were churched or belonged to an organized religion or attended services. That means 95% didn't. And that is the historical fact. In addition to these, additional factors also led to the de-Christianizing of the New England colonies. The Calvinist theology embraced by the Presbyterians and Congregationalists required a person to be elect, predestination, to be granted church membership. Failing to provide sufficient evidence of this, many were denied. When those who did acquire membership succumbed to temptation or neglected to attend meetings, they were reproved and urged to repent. But when a change of life was not visible, the sinners were excommunicated. 
their names be being struck, stricken from the records of the church. Many Americans reared in the rugged frontier environment fail to conform to the pattern of living prescribed by the New England religious leaders and were content to remain outside the church. Only an estimated 12% were churched. That means 88% were not. The greatest diversity of nationalities, <clears throat> cultures, and religious groups in the New World existed in the middle colonies, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Delaware. No one religion dominated this section, as did the Congregationalists of New England or the Anglicans of the South. After 1664, freedom of conscience was a celebrated characteristic of this region, so that members of various faiths were, were attracted to these colonies. Because of a combination of religious pluralism and a scattered population, the spiritual leaders of the middle colonies found it difficult, if not impossible, to serve their parishioners. In many areas, there were not sufficient numbers of any one faith to erect a meeting house or support adequately a preacher, resulting in the failure to organize any formal religion in the community. Only about 10% of the population were churched. So, 5% in the south, 10 to 11% in the north, in terms of the middle, you had less than 10% members, members, were members of any church in the, in the 13 colonies. The principal thrust of Protestant missionary work in the 13 colonies lagged behind the urge of Protestant states to colonize in the Americas and elsewhere did not appear until the 18th century. Surprisingly, they were slow to share the message of the gospel outside the confines of their already established colonies. Roger Williams was one of the few early colonists to think of making an effort to spread Christianity among the Native American population, taking the trouble to learn and analyze their languages and publish a guide to them. However, he too came to let this part of his ministry lapse, and the work awaited the personal decision of one New England minister, John Eliot, before it was taken up again. Beginning work in 1646, by 1663, he had produced the first Bible of any language to be printed in America, in a dialect of the Native American Alequin language, now extinct, and composed a catechism in the main local language. His extensive work produced thousands of Indian converts, organized in prayer towns next to English cultivated territory, governed by the natives themselves, but imitating, as far as possible, English models of life. Few settlers displayed Eliot's spirit of openness. Why, that's the truth. The early English Protestant neglect of evangelizing among indigenous peoples makes a curious contrast with the precocious Spanish attention to converting native peoples in South and Central America, or French efforts to the North and New France. Let's take a look at this for a second. The early English president neglect evangelizing among indigenous peoples makes a curious contrast with the precocious Spanish and French attention to this effort. It cannot simply be accounted for by the early difficulties of the colonies in surviving at all, or the tensions and cultural incomprehensions between the two societies. Elizabethan writers who published propaganda for founding colonies 
principally George Peckham, Tom Harriet, and Richard Hacklot, the younger, had stressed the importance of bringing Christianity to the peoples of America. This makes it all the more surprising that actual colonists were so slow to take up the work and undermines the message of the noble image on the first seal of the Massachusetts Bay Company, a Native American pleading in the words of Paul's missionary vision, Acts chapter 16, verse 9, Come over and help us. English Anglicans formed a missionary society in 1701, the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel, but it was at first largely intended to rally to the established church white settlers in America and their slaves, despite a good deal of rhetoric presented to early subscribers. In, in response to this spiritual apathy, as well as the deist influence, came a wide-ranging evangelical awakening. It stressed the fundamentals of Christian devotion, and particularly the renewal and revitalization of life, which results from a full commitment to Christ. Let's just say this one more time. In response to this spiritual apathy in America, as well as the deist influence, came a wide-ranging evangelical awakening, and that's when Joseph Smith was born. A notable product of this evangelicalism was a new society called Methodism, whose chief architects were John and Charles Wesley. Methodist emphasis upon conversion and cultivation of the Christian life, including service to others, contributed materially to a revival of Christianity and to the active promotion of social reforms, such as the abolition of the slave trade in the British Empire in 1807. Now, we don't live at this time, and it's, it's, this is very ancient history for us, so we're 200 years ago. But it's important to note that it took, it took people like the, like, like the Charles and Wesley, um, John and Wesley, uh, to John and Charles Wesley to bring forth the, the ideas that Christianity was irrelevant to the American public. Uh, and it doesn't happen until the 1700s. We've already had Americans in America for almost 100 years. A little more than a century after the Church of England began to establish itself in the American colonies, John Wesley, an ordained priest in the Church of England, and his brother Charles were instrumental in leading a movement within the Church to stimulate more methodical devotion. At Oxford in 1729, a small group of religious men formed a society dedicated to improving their spiritual lives. Wesley's mission was set amid rapid economic transformation in Britain. The, as we all know, you know that, that's what happened then. And a great shift in population to new manufacturing centers, much accelerated during the course of his long ministry as the Industrial Revolution gained momentum. Such places were a problem for the established church, whose ancient distribution of parishes was very difficult to amend and expand. Yes, very difficult. How could the new populations receive the pastoral care they deserved and hear the good news he had received? Wesley's answer was unconventional for a high church, Anglican. In 1739, he followed his friend and fellow clergyman, George Whitefield. At first, rather nervously, in preaching in the open air as revivalist Jesuits did in Catholic Europe. Crowds unused 
To such different personal address or much consideration from educated clergymen were gripped by mass emotion and a sense of their own sin and its release. He was astonished at the dramatic result. Crowds, they laughed, they wept, and they rolled on the ground. Something must be done with them. Wesley relished organizing people. So as he went out and preached to these people, it was very weird for the people to see these educated uh, uh, parishioners to go out and talk to the people. And the people would laugh and weep and roll on the ground, etc. So Wesley saw this as a need to organize the religion. That's where you get the Methodist, the Methodist group. It was this mode of preaching that John Wesley employed when he delivered 40,000 sermons and traveled 250,000 miles throughout England, bringing the church to the people. I want you just to consider that for a second. 40,000 sermons. 250,000 miles without monitoring just on a horse. It was this mode of preaching that John... He sent out traveling itinerant preachers to build up societies from among the excited crowds who found peace and personal dignity in the Christian message and took on the Oxford nickname of Methodists. It was this mode of preaching that John Wesley employed when he delivered those 40,000 sermons. The effects of these labors has become known as the First Great Awakening. And boy, it really was an awakening. Like some other reformers, John Wesley had not intended to establish a separate church. In fact, he himself remained a priest in the Anglican Church to his death, but arrangements were nevertheless made for the Methodist societies to expand during and after his life. The same thing happened with Martin Luther King. He had no intention of establishing Lutheranism, but after he died, as they did, and similarly, they established Methodism after this man died. I hope you can see, my friends, that the, that the, this is happening in England. We haven't even got to America yet. Um, that the, the Lord is working his, way, his will with these people by mainly making them non-Christians. The Joseph family is a perfect example. They were not Christians. The mother eventually goes to the Christian church. The father, Joseph Sr., stays home with the boys. This was the way it was in America for many years until finally the, 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 ref, the restoration was ready to happen. In the northern colonies, awakenings were led in the Congregational Church by Jonathan Edwards. Edwards combined an academic rigor which came from his deep interest in philosophy with an uncompromising attachment to Calvinism, reinforced by an experience of conversion in 1727. He insisted that we must worship God with a whole person, mind and emotion, and from the greatest philosopher to the smallest child we must love God in simplicity. In a sermon of 1738, he ended by assuring his listeners, if ever you arrive at heaven, faith and love must be the wings which must carry you there. Wow, that's beautiful. He was hospitable, hospitable to George Whitfield while doing his best to deal with the emotional havoc caused in congregation in the wake of Whitfield's visits, and he agonized about how far to restrict the communion table to the dem demonstrably regenerate. His ministry, largely as a consequence of his agonizing, was never free of quarrels. But he remains among the most celebrated of the powerful personalities who rallied crowds to the themes of the awakening. Now, the reason it was called the Great Awakening is because people were waking up spiritually. So the idea that everyone belonged to a church and everyone was, was religious is just simply not true.
The Great Awakenings thus shaped the future of American religion. They destroyed the territorial com communality, which was still the assumption of most religious practice back in Europe. That's important. Religious practice, like conversion, became a matter of choice. Only in America. Charismatic ministers who lacked the scruples of Gilbert Tennant or Jonathan Edwards ignored traditional boundaries in setting out to win souls. Priorities and worship changed in the awakenings. Renewal was experienced as renewal of enthusiasm rather than performance of an unchanging liturgy. Protestant churches, which did not adapt and which based themselves on traditional European models, suffered. The Anglicans strongly linked to the Church of England, which was struggling at the same time with the Methodist and Evangelical revivals, were even more resistant than the Congregationalist churches of New England to the style of the Awakenings. They did little missionizing on the ever-expanding frontiers, and they lost out as a result. In 1700, they served roughly a quarter of the colonial population. In 1775, even after rapid population growth, roughly a ninth. Yeah, from a quarter to, the, to a ninth. Coalescing out of the welter of new gatherings came new denominations. New denominations. That's where we'll end today and start next time. I hope that this brief uh, view of the history of Christianity is how when you see that the Lord had to do a lot of things to get ready for the restoration. We're still praying for the restoration now. We'll continue our discussion next week as we look at this. And I say it's the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you for being with us today for another segment of Dr. Bartholomew's insightful review of aspects of church history. This podcast is presented through the facilities of Golden Gems Radio. We invite you to listen to www.goldengems.net, where you will find presented each week a review of the music and career of one of the great musical artists from the 40s, 50s, and 60s, when music was music in the golden days of radio. Please join us again next week for another episode in church history with Dr. Bartholomew.